Give me the power. Give me the dark. Um, Noel, you all right? I call on you, the laughing gods. Oh, okay, I mean, the laughing gods don't sound so bad. Let your blackness crawl beneath my skin. Oh, God, that's not going to end well. Accept thy sacrifice of Xander's stupid fucking bracelet. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally with you on that. Right? Welcome to Still Pretty. I'm film scholar Noelle LaCroix. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And we are here today to talk about Witch, the third episode of season one. Witch aired on March 17th, 1997, and was written by Dana Reston and directed by Stephen Craig. This is the only episode of Buffy done by either of them, and the only time in the entire run of Buffy that an episode is done by both a one-time writer and director. I know. So we've already hit like a big first moment. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. Let's go on patrol. In which Buffy tries out for the cheerleading squad, much to Giles's disapproval. You have a sacred birthright, Buffy. You were chosen to destroy vampires, not to wave pom-poms at people. When a cheerleader's hands catch on fire at tryouts, Buffy saves the day, and the group gets into research mode, despite Buffy's protests. You guys don't have to get involved. What do you mean? We're a team. Aren't we a team? Yeah. You're the Slayer, and we're like the Slayerettes. After messing up during the tryouts, a girl named Amy freaks out about her inability to do what her mother Catherine did, who was a cheerleading legend back in the day. She was the best. And I can't get my body to move like hers. I choked in there so bad. When Amy becomes third alternate, a shadowy figure performs magic to take enough girls off the team that Amy gets on, starting with Cordelia, who goes blind during school the next day. What's happening? I can't see anything. One by one, Amy's competition is taken out, including Buffy, who falls under a drunken spell that gets Amy on the team. Amy, you just made cheerleader. No, no, no. You don't want her. She's a a wise choice indeed. As Buffy gets loopier, Giles identifies the spell, which will kill Buffy in a few hours. Willow and Xander keep an eye on Amy while Buffy and Giles go to confront Amy and her mother, only to discover some Freaky Friday shit going on. She switched. She switched your bodies, didn't she? While Catherine cheers, Giles and Amy take Buffy to the chemistry lab to reverse the spell. Catherine falters at the top of the pyramid and runs off to stop them. Giles reverses the spell just as Catherine breaks in with an axe. And then things get bad. I'm going to put you where you can't make trouble again. Guess what? I feel better. Catherine casts a spell, sending Buffy to a dark place. But Buffy reflects the spell back onto her. And Catherine ends up where she belongs. Inside the trophy she won in high school. However she is, I don't think we'll have to worry. All right, so Noelle, yes. what did you think about Witch? Oh my gosh. Um, there's a lot to unpack in Witch that I didn't see when I watched through it the first time. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I had to watch through it. <laughs> I had to watch through it a couple of times after my first watch this time because yeah. I had to go back um, mostly because the first time through, I couldn't remember which witch was which in the witch switch. Right. Sorry. 
I had to do that. No, I love it. That's adorable. <laughs> um, but the thing, the thing I was trying to figure out was at what point is Amy Amy and at what point is Amy really Catherine? And yeah. we hear when, when Amy's story comes out, we hear that it was a few months ago. Mm-hmm. That Amy and her mother, or that Amy, um, we hear that it was a few months ago that Amy woke up in her mother's room. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Catherine presumably switched their bodies over the summer and then starved her stolen body because the first thing that we hear about Amy is that Willow is surprised that Amy wants to go out for cheerleading. And then we hear that she lost a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. And the way that Willow says it suggests to me that it was abrupt yes. and unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, so Catherine has been in this body long enough to starve it down to cheerleader thinness. So right. from the very beginning, that Amy that we see is actually her mother. Is actually Catherine, except, and this is the thing that I really don't like about Witch, Mm -hmm. except that everything that we see of Amy up until the moment that she comes home and throws her backpack at Catherine and says, do my homework, Mm -hmm. right? Everything we see of her up until then is this vulnerable, she's trying so hard, but she just can't do what her mother did. And when you go back, like the thing about a, a reveal like that, like a turn like that, is that when you go back, you're supposed to be able to see the turn all the way through and it's supposed to be clear. But rather, I think we are deliberately misled so that they can preserve that. Oh, my God, it was her mother all along. Right. And every time I watch this episode, I always end up going back to that question. When did Catherine, you know, take over Amy? Mm-hmm. And I mean, textually, it was months ago. It was well before the beginning of this episode well before the first time we see Amy Mm -hmm. yet we have all of that you know vulnerability all of that fear which is not something that is really part of Catherine Catherine is super super evil you know and there's that moment with Cordelia where Cordelia comes in and threatens Amy in the locker room right yeah okay so we see Amy looking all tense and looking all scared and intimidated and no way is Catherine with the kind of power that she has going to be intimidated by that absolutely you know She's going to be like, all right, bitch, I'm taking you out. And that's, of course, the next thing she does when she makes Cordelia blind. So that whole thing, I think, is is a misdirect done poorly. A misdirect done poorly will never match up when you go back and watch it. So we are deliberately lied to in those early moments with Amy. And that always bugs me here. Absolutely. And that scene that you just mentioned with Cordelia in the locker room Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. another sort of... I feel like we're tricked again just in the the film language there because that mm-hmm. we enter the locker room with a handheld camera mm-hmm. and we're sort of walking past the showers that are dripping ominously and reminding us of you know the the horror genre where right you know poor Janet Lee is stabbed to death in psycho or you know whatever what have you or like this- Carrie is attacked in mm-hmm. the high school showers when she has her period mm-hmm. and Carrie yeah yeah mm-hmm. so you know high school showers we've got you know this is creepy we've got the same mm-hmm. green hue that we see in the cauldron in the attic it's creepy mm-hmm. the camera sort of leers around the edge of the lockers at Amy and it really mm-hmm. feels 
for all intents and purposes, like we're setting up the idea that there's something sneaking up on her, whether that's another yeah. person or whether it's some sort of a dark force. Um, mm-hmm. As she's standing there, you know, getting changed, although, you know, blessedly she's already changed. So we don't have that male gazy moment. Right. Um, but it's a very, that feels like a misdirect too. That feels like, yes. like the director is telling us, hey, she's being watched. Hey, somebody's coming after her. Mm-hmm. And there's never any real payoff for that. I mean, we've had handheld. Right. We've had handheld camera earlier. the the first um, The first handheld camera that we get is at the very beginning when we establish that there's something unsafe going on in this attic. Um, right, because we have that irony moment where Buffy says, "I just want to do something safe," and then we go into the attic. And of course, the handheld camera, the shakiness of the handheld camera, is a visual language. Mm-hmm. It's a visual language that tells us that something is very wrong here. Something is dangerous. Something is on edge. Something is unpredictable. Yeah, it's literally the handheld unsteady. camera is not controlled. Literally unsteady. Yeah. So, so that's really interesting. I hadn't noticed the handheld um, in the scene with Amy and Cordelia, but that makes absolute sense, you know, because she's unsteady. But the thing is that because we're with Amy, we're in Amy's POV for that scene, we are told that she is unsteady when the fact of the matter is Catherine is unstable, you know, like mentally, Mm -hmm. but she is absolutely steady. She knows what she's doing and she is the most powerful and most dangerous thing in that space. Absolutely. And she's very deliberate about what she mm-hmm. does. Um, so that scene, that scene does not match up for me with the mm-hmm. episode as a whole, with the the twist that we're setting up for, for Catherine right. and Amy. Um, but I think this, this issue of the mother taking over her daughter's body is really, really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Because at first it looks like a literalized version of a parent, you know, living vicariously through their child. Oh, sure. Except this is a parent sure. living literally through her child. Well, and that's the thing. You take the, the meaning, you take the reality, and you branch it off into a metaphor. And I think they actually did that really well. Absolutely. But I think that there's something mm-hmm. else there, too. Um, mm-hmm. And it's connected to touch. Yeah. Okay. And I just, I don't know. This feels like a little bit of a stretch. But... As soon as I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. There's a deep metaphorical mm-hmm. violation of being inside someone else's body without that person's consent, right? Yes. So, mm-hmm. you know, so we've got we've got that metaphor, that violation, but then Catherine's mm-hmm. magic itself is also very connected to touch. Um, the introduction of the magic is the hand snatching the mm-hmm. the Barbie doll. So that's right. I mean, hands are the first thing that we get with this this uh mm-hmm. right. You know, this fictionalized version of witchcraft. Hands are the first thing we see with a spell. Um and then the spell that's cast on Amber sets her hands on fire. We get this right. shot mm-hmm. of her, you know, it's very clear that that's what's going on. This lovely shot of her with her hands all ablaze. The spell that's cast on Cordelia yes. blinds her, but it's depicted for television with this lovely covering of her eyes, which is just a, mm-hmm. it's a physical effect. It's so easy. Contact lenses, so effective. Mm-hmm. 
They always yes. work for me. I love it. I love a magical or demonic contact lens. Right. And it's creepy to see the eyes all Absolutely. white. You know, I mean, that's just a really creepy effect and very yeah. simple. Yeah. So that affects, you know, it affects her eyes. And we've got the spell cast on the girl in the science lab. Do we ever learn her name? God, I don't okay. know. I don't know right. if we do. I try to yeah. try to name mm-hmm. characters when I know their names, but she doesn't have a name. Um, that yeah. That spell seals her mouth so she's Mm -hmm. you know again the physical body is being affected by the spell and then of course buffy is played like drunkenness um with her falling all over xander who seems totally Mm -hmm. prepared to take advantage of this incapacitated young woman and oh my god um (laughs) <laughs> yeah but no it's not good we're gonna we're gonna be talking a lot yeah. about xander in a little bit <laughs> yeah so we've got hands eyes mouth mm-hmm. these are all areas of the body mm-hmm. where survivors of sexual abuse might be vulnerable both literally because of what has been done to them or what they have experienced um or what they've been mm-hmm. forced to do and metaphorically you know unable to see the oh, world yeah. clearly unable to speak you know about what's going on with them Mm -hmm. um and the magic is nearly always associated with dramatic moments connected to the other person's body so when Mm -hmm. buffy tackles amber to the ground to put out the fire you know she has to throw her body on top of amber's um buffy tackles Mm -hmm. cordelia again throwing herself on top Mm -hmm. of cordelia to get her out of the way of the speeding truck um Magic drunk Buffy has to be restrained physically by Xander and Willow, which would not work. But right. whatever. Because <laughs> she's drunk, but she's, she's still, still the slayer. But yeah. I mean, come mm-hmm. on, but whatever. So yeah. they have to grab mm-hmm. her and physically drag her, you know, despite the she's she's mm-hmm. uh resisting being dragged, but they drag her out. Right. Um right. and then when when Catherine gets uh magicked back into her body she leaps onto buffy mm-hmm. so we've got this yeah. really physical uh, violent Uh-oh. physical connection to the magic that's going on that i find very interesting mm-hmm. and really suggests to me some sort of a um mother-daughter sexual abuse angle wow i had never seen that before um and I think, I mean, like I say, it feels like a bit of a stretch. But on the other hand, once you look for it, um, once you start to mm-hmm. see the connection to the physicality of the story, I think that there's there's something there beyond just the mother living through her daughter. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you know, entering the body without consent, you know, I mean, that is a sexual. Absolutely. Metaphor. And having lived in that body for months, I mean, you know, having yeah. to just the implication of having to dress and um, bathe and feed or mm-hmm. not um, this physical oh, body yeah. that she's occupying. I think that mm-hmm. there's something very, um, you know, obviously very. Well, that's a very really, intimate. yeah, that's a dark a alley, intimate. man. I hadn't even thought yeah. about that. But yeah, it is, it is kind of creepy. And I mean, you know, I mean, we don't see anything like that. But I mean, there are other things that you can do with somebody's body. If Absolutely. You have control over it. Absolutely. Because we're not, um, yeah, we're not, not doing good. sex or sexuality really at this stage in Buffy. Um, mm-hmm. We had a little mm-hmm. bit of rape imagery 
last time with uh, mm-hmm. Luke and Buffy in the in the uh, mausoleum. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. they're not. We're really we're really not doing sex, as pointed up by yeah. the the moment when Buffy is helping her mother unpack uh, the yeah. tribal art. Right, right. And right. she peeks at the fertility statue. What do you think of that moment? Right. It's just jeepers. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I thought that that was, it was funny. Um, and of course, you know, like the only textual place where we go anywhere near sex mm-hmm. so far, you know. Um, and it's, you know, and of course it is the mother protecting the daughter from this knowledge of this fertility, you know, mm-hmm. statue or whatever, and what that represents. Um, so yeah, so that was kind of that's, you know, I thought that was yeah. kind of a funny moment. But yeah, I think that that's, that's the only place where we textually even remotely nod toward sex aside from Xander's grossness, which we'll talk about yeah. in a little bit. But the, other thing, <laughs> the, other, the other thing about that moment is if you're reading, if you want to read in a narrative of mother daughter abuse, Joyce is protecting mm-hmm. Buffy from images of yeah. bodies and sexuality. Mm-hmm. So could we extend that, you know, could we see Catherine as, I mean, because cheerleading, cheerleading is mm-hmm. sex light, right? I mean, cheerleaders are there to be right. titillating, mm-hmm. aren't they? <laughs> well, <laughs> to- yes. Short skirts that fly up and show the underwear, which of course is like, you know, shorts that they wear underneath, mm-hmm. but still there, there is a very sexualized, a little girl, innocent sexualized element to cheerleading that has always mm-hmm. been there. You know, I mean, it has always been the subtext in in every high school, both in reality and, you know, always again on TV. And we have this, you know, um, this kind of culturally sort of sanctioned fantasy of, you know, men loving girls in cheerleading outfits and having fantasies about, you know, high school girls in either cheerleading outfits or Catholic school Mm -hmm. girl outfits, uh, both of which, you know, uh, lead to a disturbing Mm -hmm. place. Um, So, yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, but uh, but Amy's so Amy's body in particular really is the focus of a lot of the Mm -hmm. energy around the magic that's going on. And I just... Yeah. I don't know what to make of that beyond ew. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's like, <laughs> well, I hadn't seen that before. Sorry. <laughs> now you're gonna see okay, it I'll never ever see it now. Exactly. Exactly. Ever. Oh, um, and then I just yeah. the the another moment that just does not sit right with me is at the very end when. Buffy and Amy, who's now back in her own body, uh, are walking away from the trophy case. Amy says, uh, I'm just happy to have my body back. I'm thinking of getting fat. And I know that weight and body size and Amy's body size and her mother's body size in particular are very much the focus of that abusive relationship dynamic. But mm-hmm. I can't help but think about the um, the frequent occurrence among survivors of assaults and abuse. The uh, that weight gain tends to be part of the trauma. Yeah, and I yeah. just mm-hmm. i 
I feel very strongly that that's not something that our writer and director set out to put in this story, but it's there nonetheless. And I find that, I find that, that last exchange strange, Um, but in light Mm -hmm. of reading the text as a story about mother daughter, sexual abuse, it really seems telling that Amy's separation from her mother, not only, not only is she separating from her mother by, you know, truly, I mean, she's, she's once again, separate from her mother. Her mother's no longer in her life mm-hmm. because her mother is trapped in a cheerleading trophy forever. <laughs> cheerleading trophy, which is fantastic. But she's going to separate her body from her mother's body as well. Um, yeah. Well, from her mother's control. I mean, I think that a lot of it is that that's something that when you, when your body has been violated, you gain control over it. And one of the ways in which I think um, people express that control, and especially for Amy, whose mother had, you know, starved her body for all those months is, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get fat. I'm going to, you know, eat whatever I want. And instead, and that's the thing too, is that instead of saying, I'm going to eat whatever I want, because we have this thing with the brownies too, right? Mm-hmm. Her mother controlled what she ate she would feed her broth and then um and then she would go have brownies over mm-hmm. at willow's house and then she's you know her dad is baking her brownies at the end so the the brownies and the ability to eat becomes this huge massive rebellion for women and i think in general for women that is true you know in general culturally we're told we need to be as small as we can possibly Mm -hmm. be you know we are encouraged to always lose weight you know and there are a lot of different factors that go into that you know some of which is of course the diet the dietary industrial Mm -hmm. complex which makes a huge amount of money by creating a problem which doesn't exist and then saying we can solve it for you you know um but i think that you know, there's this thing about being allowed to eat whatever you want, that eating actually becomes an act of rebellion for women in general. And so when you pick that up from the culture, whether you mean to place it in here in the middle of all of this, this grander context or not, you know, it's something that you pick up from the culture, because that is how women rebel. Women rebel by, by feeding Mm -hmm. themselves. You know, like they're not allowed mm-hmm. to feed themselves, you know. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's and interesting. Buffy backs her up. Buffy says, I hear that mm-hmm. look is in for spring. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, on the one hand is lovely and affirming, you know, not why would you want to do right. that? <laughs> but exactly. also supports exactly. the idea that this is a fashion choice about the larger culture, about mm-hmm. what is trendy mm-hmm. as opposed to what is best for Amy and her bodily autonomy. So speaking of bodily autonomy oh and women's God. women's autonomy in general. In general, yes. Oh God, Lonnie, I can't with Xander. I oh, can't. Wow. Wow. No, Xander is is particularly horrible. You know, I had this kind of idea the last time, you know, we talked about this shadow side of Xander, mm-hmm. you know, this shadow side that, that I think even the writers are not completely aware of. And then there's light Xander, who is the Xander that I love and the Xander that I have, you know, had affection for all the time. And so throughout my first, you know, few runs through Buffy, the only Xander I actually saw was light Xander, you know, was fun, lovely Xander that I that I really 
really adore. And so now I'm going through these and I'm like making a list of all of the things like what is Shadow Xander, you know, and Shadow Xander is the the unconscious things that Xander is allowed to do without consequence, you know, Um, and then there's Light Xander, which is funny, sweet, you know, Xander. And I had a ton of stuff for Shadow Xander and almost nothing for Light Xander, which to me is so incredibly telling, you know, how this character ends up behaving in these really terrible ways that we kind of just dismiss with this boys will be boys. Isn't it cute and funny? You know, I mean, you know, there's an argument that Xander's behavior can be waved away with that. Like he's a teenage boy. This is how teenage boys are. But it really is this very damaging boys will be boys blanket permission for them to behave however they want. And then, you know, the reason why boys are that way is because we train boys to be that way. Mm -hmm. We train them to believe that they are entitled to everything, you know. And I mean, it starts with the fucking bracelet right? They are not dating. There has been nothing from Buffy, you know, to indicate that she is into him or that she wants a relationship with him. But he gives her this bracelet and the bracelet. I had a bracelet like that. He was my boyfriend. I was in like the seventh grade or whatever. And he got me a bracelet and I loved it, you know, because that was, but I remember those bracelets, you know, Mm -hmm. and, but it's, it's this early marking of a woman as possessed you know as yours right she wears a physical chain around her wrist that says he's hers you know because it says yours always right yeah she would wear right but it is a symbol of bondage and he is not wearing anything like the boys don't wear anything you know they give nothing they wear nothing until marriage and then they wear a little ring which they take off whenever they go to the bar or whatever you know (laughs) but Girls get pinned. They wear the high school ring. They wear the letterman's jacket. They get these bracelets. And boys, there are no strings on the boys. There's Mm -hmm. no symbolism of possession that is placed on men, but it's placed on women. And here he is trying to give her, you know, this thing, this symbol of his possession of her. And she's looking at it and she's like, well, that's weird. But she's not even thinking about him in that way. She's not thinking about it in that way. But it is such a weird thing for him to put this bracelet on her. And then I was thinking about, you know, we have the necklace the angel gave her, right? You know, so why is the necklace better? Why is the necklace different? And the reason for that is that it is not a symbol of possession. It's a symbol of protection. He gives her something that she needs in the fight. You know, it is a silver cross. She can actually hurt a vampire with that. You well, know? and she does. Yeah, when she Luke does. is going to mm-hmm. bite her. Right. It's the, been, it's the necklace. It's the necklace that gets him off of her. Right. So, so it is a protective thing. And that is different. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, you know, because we're, we're going real deep into the sexual assault metaphors. But no, uh, we really are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is still pretty, folks. This is what yeah. we're going <laughs> to gonna it's gonna get interesting and problematic yes it is. <laughs> um but I just I was I was reflecting on that that moment um and that gesture of the necklace as I was thinking about Xander's bracelet and mm-hmm. it occurred to me that it's this this gesture of protection from angel that helps Buffy um enables Buffy to fight off this vampire rape. Yes, that mm-hmm. it's and it is on men to stop rape. She's right. not strong mm-hmm. enough to get Luke off of her. She needs right. that. She needs that support from Angel mm-hmm. in order to survive that encounter. And I just, 
Yeah, I mean, I'll co-sign. Yeah, I'll co-sign that accidental message in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Men, it is on you to stop. It is rape. on you to stop rape. Absolutely. Although it is on the person who's doing the attacking, not necessarily somebody who's protecting. Because I mean, you know, traditionally throughout our culture, right? We men, quote unquote, have been stopping rape by um, by basically caging women yes you know women are not allowed like at school right if their bra strap shows they get sent home right because mm-hmm. a boy can't see a bra strap it's again boys will be boys right we're not stopping the male behavior you know we're like covering up the female mm-hmm. so i mean that's something that we've been doing culturally for a long time and well i i'm actually okay with the uh with the necklace and i think that that it was a good symbol of protection and that i really see that as angel working in a team with buffy yeah. and no way was luke going to get the best of Buffy with or without the necklace the necklace just bought her an opening to fight back you know absolutely Um, you know I mean so so there I think like I'm okay but I see exactly you know what you're talking about and that is something that you know that we have throughout our culture this idea that we you know it started with covering women up with clothing and in some cultures that is still you know part of it um, where women need to be covered up because men can't see any part of a woman without being overcome with lust and wanting to rape her you know right so rather than impinging on male behavior and putting that weight on men who make those choices you know the the weight is on the women to protect themselves you know but but you need to do that both ways you know absolutely yeah male entitlement to women's bodies and experiences is something that i i have a feeling we're going to come back to over and over and over again on this show um especially with sander because my god when he So back to this bracelet that we hate so much. (laughs) When he gives it to her, he doesn't even do it as he he half asses it. He gives it to her and then he's like, oh, they all said that. They all came like, so which one is it, Xander? Mm -hmm. You know, is this a... Well, it's like he's secretly trying to brand her without her knowing. Yes. He's so entitled He's so Which is entitled even to her. worse. And that does speak to consent. You know, like he's telling her that this is something other than what it really is. And so because she doesn't know what it is, she cannot consent to it. She wouldn't accept it if she realized that that was how he felt about her. But he's not even brave enough to like say, you know, what he's feeling with yeah. her. Well, you know, then- and give her a chance to reject him. She doesn't want to give, he doesn't want to give her the chance, the opportunity to reject him. Exactly. Willow calls him on it too. He mm-hmm. says, it's like we're dating. And and uh, Willow says something about, except for the hugging and the kissing and her knowing about it. And her knowing about it, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if that's not... Yeah. Oh, it, uh, yeah. It's... So gross. I just It's an incredible amount of entitlement from Xander and you know, and I'm telling you, not the last time we're gonna see that oh, from God. him. But calling it out is what makes it better. The fact that that I can see Shadow Xander now, whereas I couldn't even see it before because this was all expected. All of this stuff was expected from boys, you know? Yeah. Um, the gross way that he leers over um Amber when she's stretching, waiting for the tryouts to oh, begin. Yeah is just completely disgusting. And let me ask you a question. Sure. Like, uh, why is she stretching out onto chairs? Now, you're you're a dancer. I am. You know, so, like, is that a thing that dancers do? It is a thing. that seems dangerous. It's a thing that you do if you have, uh, if you can stretch further than a full split. Uh-huh. So if you want your hips lower than your ankles, mm-hmm. 
for the stretch, mm-hmm. you might prop yourself up on two chairs. There is no reason for her to be doing that, though, apart from, you know, it, apart it from yeah, elevating her for the male gaze. That's the only for, reason. Exactly. Exactly. For the male gaze. So I don't know. I thought that that was incredibly gross. I hated the way when the tryouts uh, were posted, Xander pushes his way past all of these girls who actually have a dog in that fight who are looking to see if their names are on there. But he pushes up to the front of the line and gets in there and, you know, and gets in their way so that he can see and report back to Buffy, yeah. you know, whether she made it or not. Um, so I find that really annoying. And then there's this moment, too, with Xander, which actually I kind of liked because it's not Shadow Xander, because it gets called out um, when he has this complete misunderstanding of of Willow's feelings for him, mm-hmm. you know, and and he's he's like, you know, you're one of the guys. That's my Willow. You yeah. know, and then later on, when Buffy calls him one of the girls, it's him being textually slapped for that behavior. Yes. Which which I'm OK as long like I don't mind the bad behavior. You can have bad behavior in stories. You should because it's a great source of conflict and of societal you know commentary. Definitely. But you have to acknowledge it and you have to have consequences for it. And there's never any consequences, you know, for um, for Xander. And we also get this like disgusting friend zone thing right Cordelia walks past he says Cordelia you haven't been mean to me all day Cordelia you haven't paid any attention to me all day you know you're supposed to you owe me that attention you know? uh, yeah and then he comes in and he says you know she see how she doesn't even see me as a man much less a human being which states that men are higher level than even human beings which is a, a level lower, yes you know which puts him in that male supremacy yeah. thing, which by the way Ugh, at that and then he has the it's the invisible man syndrome a blessing in cordelia's case a curse in buffy's i mean he is a proto incel right there you yeah know, this idea that he's being friend zoned and that's a bad thing because no one wants to be friends with women we want to possess and conquer women and um and when we can't have that somehow we're being denied our right you know yeah. oh it's just <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like no, it's all bad. It's so bad. It's mm-hmm. so bad. Every moment oh, of Xander is bad in this episode. I know. Well, no. There's one moment. Okay. And this is always the moment that I remember and it's just it's cute Xander. It's cute self-deprecatory Xander where he says I laugh in the face of danger then I hide until it goes away, you know. Yeah. Um that's cute. It's self-aware. You know, this is the kind of Xander that I really like, mm-hmm. you know. And I mean, there's a reason why we love Xander. And a lot of people who do love Xander, I mean, a lot of people have real serious problems with Xander, which they should. But there are reasons for those of us who love Xander why we love Xander. And splitting him into these two parts, Shadow Xander and Light Xander, um, is kind of an interesting exercise, especially when you think of it in in terms of season five's episode, The Replacement, where we literally split him into mm-hmm. two, you know. But they're not, even then, though, it's not like Light Xander and Shadow Xander. It's kind of like Strong Xander and Weak Xander. But the the Jerky Xander is still evenly split among both parts. We never completely, like, you know, cut that out. Um but I find it so interesting, especially when I think in context of how much I have always loved Xander, you know, how much like Xander, the funny, the funny beta male is my catnip. Like I love (laughs) that guy. I always love that guy, you know? Um, And yet 
the things that he does that just he sort of gets away with that are expected um, that are are basically rubber stamped as okay because we don't textually counteract them um, is a real problem. Yeah, the the show has a masculinity problem, um, a little bit of a masculinity problem. I I'm interested to hear your thoughts on Giles. In this episode and father yeah. figures in particular, okay. we have Amy's, we hear about Amy's father as well. Um, right. But mm-hmm. Giles, I mean, we open with Giles in this, I mean, he's giving Buffy a dad speech, right? Oh, yeah. No, he is. He's, he's right into the father figure, like immediately. That is yeah. his role with her. So what and I don't know, there's something very dear to me about him mm-hmm. using his jacket as a pillow for Buffy when she's incapacitated. Yeah. I don't know what that is, mm-hmm. but it just like I he sets her down and then tucks her in and I just go, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's very sweet. It's very sweet the way that he is protective of her. And the thing is, is that there there is this element to protection, right? They can be patriarchal, yeah. like we were talking about with with Angel, you know, before with the mm-hmm. with the necklace, right? The the sense of, you know, we must protect right. the women kind of thing. But it's it's not even that he protects her because he also is standing behind her while she goes out and does the fight. So he is never saying you shouldn't, you know, you're not strong enough, you can't handle this yourself. What he's doing is he's being a support mm-hmm. person to her and it's just different there's a difference between protecting and and protecting women through um through caging them through putting them in a box wrapping them in bubble wrap whatever you do which says you're not strong enough right giles in his relationship with buffy is never a case of you're not strong enough it's a case of here let my strength add to your strength which is the way these relationships should be not just father daughter but all human relationships should be let my strength add to your strength let me do what i can here for you and so in that moment when he takes his jacket off you know and also like i would like to say here we have men putting things Mm -hmm. on buffy you know, we've got Angel with the necklace, which, again, I like, but mm-hmm. still men putting things on Buffy. Um, Xander with the bracelet, right, which, of course, brings to mind the Letterman's jacket and all of those things that I said before. Right. Giles is taking his clothing and not marking her with it, not possessing mm-hmm. her with it, but supporting her with it. Yeah. And I love yeah, that. It, that that moment really works for me. Giles, actually, Giles in this episode, I really enjoy Um when he and Buffy go to Amy's house to confront her mother and Giles is speaking yeah. to Catherine like another, like a fellow adult. He believes that this is the mother who yeah. is, you know, mm-hmm. has no idea what's going on. And it's Amy, you know, in her mother's body makes, makes eye contact with Buffy and then Buffy realizes what's going mm-hmm. on. While Amy is telling her story, Giles is sitting off to the side. She's speaking to both of them, but she's speaking mostly to Buffy. And Giles is just, he's just kind of there as a support person and as an information Mm -hmm. person. Right. He's not taking over. He's not well actually with anything. You know, I mean, he's, yeah, he's He's just there there letting her speak. And then he, you know, he's the... Mm -hmm. Obviously, he's the one with the the magical knowledge he knows to go get the book. And that cat in the box. Right. Mm-hmm. Lonnie, <laughs> is that a pussy joke? <laughs> I read it as a Schrodinger's cat joke. 
I have it in my notes. Well, it looks like Schrodinger's cat is alive, so at least there's that. Um, no, I don't think I don't think it's a pussy joke, but the cat I, in the box. Yeah, that's kind of I don't yeah. Know. I hadn't really thought about that. I don't. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I don't know. No, I hadn't I hadn't thought about it that way. But I don't I don't think so. I mean, I think honestly, so- first of all, the cat in the box is ridiculous. There's why would you keep a cat? I mean, a black cat in a box and uh, obviously this is a witch and she's not a good she's not good to her daughter, so she's not going to be good to, you know, a cat. But at the same time, it's it's such a ridiculous yeah. thing. And I think they just do it for the jump, you know, for the oh my god, you know, there's a thing in the in the box, you know, and the cat <laughs> is like, "I'm out of here." All right. <laughs> I've been watching this woman do some weird fucked up shit for a while. I would like to be feral on my own. I'll eat mice. I don't care. I just can't deal with this. I cannot deal with these Barbie dolls in this cauldron. I'm out of here. Yeah. Well, no, I actually, and it's funny because there is kind of a relationship between science and magic in this episode, which I find kind of interesting, especially with relationship Mm. to Willow, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, so like, then the science, of course, relationship, the jump that I'm making is Schrodinger's cat, right? Of course, which is the the theory that the cat inside the box is both dead and not dead until you open the box and observe, you cannot know. So that's a scientific idea. So it made me kind of think, and here is this, this, what I would call like a scientific, um, for me, it's more of a scientific rather than I a like that representation. Um, you know, in, I like in that your magical space. Better, but I, I just, like it better too. I think that I'm sorry, I had to go there. <laughs> no, I think it's great. I'm glad that you brought it up. But now, of course, I will never be able to think of it any other way. I used to be innocent, and then I did a podcast with Noel Lacroix. But I mean, we have science in all of these magical yes. spaces, and we have magic within the scientific spaces. So you know, we do this um, this test on um, Amy. You know in the chemistry lab to find out if she's mm-hmm. a witch. And of course she is because it turned blue, you know, right. um, you know, not unlike the pregnancy test. Um, but, uh, but they, they do this test with magical elements within this, this science environment, you know? Um, and then we've got Giles later, you know, the same thing. He's doing a, um, you know, a magical spell in the chemistry lab um, when he's, when he's switching the bodies back and undoing, reversing all of the spells that uh, that Catherine had had put on everybody. Um, and then, you know, we see Willow. And of course, we know that Willow in time is going to become, you know, incredibly powerful witch. You know, she's going to have incredible, powerful magic um, that she wields. And here, you know, we go from this scientific place, sort of taking science and moving it, you know, forcefully into this magical space, which I think is really interesting because of, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, right? Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. That the relationship between science and magic does end up getting, getting blurred in some spaces. And of course, that's the difference between science fiction and fantasy, right? When you feel that kind of weird overlap between these two spaces, that's sort of the, right. the uncanny valley of, of science fiction and fantasy, where it's not one, it's not the other, it's kind of both, but they're so opposite each other, because the whole point of fantasy, fantasy is about these magical metaphors that represent emotional spaces, you know, and emotional realities, whereas mm-hmm. science is about science, science is about actual reality. And so when you have science and magic kind of crashing 
into each other at a certain space. It's it's like, you know, in Star Wars, we have the Force and then suddenly George <laughs> Lucas comes in and calls it midichlorians and you're suddenly like, what mm-hmm. the fuck, right? It's a raw, it's a bad space because we're, we're, we're smashing our metaphor of emotional reality into mm-hmm. the science of actual reality reality. And it always feels in these story spaces really weird for me. And and there was something about that Although I like, yes. I like that Willow is doing her first magic spell. You know, this is her first magic spell ever. And it's kind of interesting to see her do that. And, and in a space in which she's so comfortable because it's chemistry and it's science, which is her kind of space right now, you know, but that the magic is moving in and sort of claiming her from that space and it will pull her out of it. And she's going to move, you know, all, all the way over into the magical end of the spectrum, which I think is really good. But I don't know if I'm the only one who feels that clash between the magical metaphor and and the space where you know where science you know becomes advanced and uh, so advanced that it looks like it looks like magic but yet it's still science i don't i don't think you're the only one who sees that um i love Mm -hmm. willow as the magical scientist I love that it's yes. mm-hmm. we see her capability and in fact it's she takes the dissection over from Xander. Xander can't do it. He's too squeamish and she just Right, cuz Xander very- can't do it, right? But also, I and can I just say that's a frog or a toad, right? That a newt is a different thing. Yes. Like apparently the eye of a frog and the eye of a newt are interchangeable magically. Well, so, I guess. Even eye of newt is an eye of newt. Eye of newt I think is mustard seed. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I know we're not doing we're not doing real witchcraft on this show, but we're not. Right. That's another thing. Let's talk a little Mm -hmm. bit. Let's talk a little bit about witchcraft and magic on this show. This is our first introduction to the idea Mm -hmm. of witchcraft on Buffy. Um, And it's interesting to me because, you know, last time we had some borrowing of religious and spiritual symbols without really mm-hmm. giving them any context. Um, I'm thinking about Buffy's box of Slayer fun things yeah. and mm-hmm. her communion wafers. Yes. Because, right? That's... Because, sure. Yeah. Um, so we've got, you know, we've got this this opening, this opening handheld shot in the attic and we see um, drying flowers and herbs and mm-hmm. you know all of your sort of general markers of fictional uh fictionalized witchcraft and it's you know we've got green sludge and a cauldron and gargoyles and dolls hanging from the ceiling because i don't know is hanging things hanging from the ceiling is that just visual shorthand for witchcraft i think maybe yeah you know cuz cuz you have the hanging herbs that are dry right which of course witchcraft i mean that's that's science that's medicine Absolutely. you know in the past that's that's what that yeah. was um but they called it witchcraft because it was sufficiently advanced technology that they couldn't understand at the time like how does it, a flower right. work you know to to fix this thing it must be right. witchcraft well, you know? and the thing about witchcraft is that it's a very broad term um and it's yeah. different across cultures and societies and even for individuals um so i mean yeah very very simply witchcraft just means the belief in and practice of magical abilities, right? So mm-hmm. witchcraft, I mean, here we have witchcraft and and 
witches being associated with women, um, which I think is part mm-hmm. of the reason that we have Willow take over from Xander. Um, yeah. Right. But Mm -hmm. I just, I mean, I just feel the need to say, because this is an inclusive podcast, that witchcraft is available to and practiced by people of all genders. This association with witchcraft and the feminine is um, largely due to media representation, uh, historical Mm -hmm. control of women's bodies and experiences. Here we go again. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And I think it's also it's also worth noting that here. Um, in this episode of Buffy, at least we're talking about witchcraft, the practice, and not Wicca, the mm-hmm. religion. Um, but yes. we're gonna we're gonna have some interesting um, neo pagan religious conversations, I think, as we go along. But yeah, oh yeah, we will because there's 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 a there's a reference where the show itself in season four aligns witchcraft with Wicca. Yeah, you know, to a certain degree, and we don't really get a whole lot of clarity with that. It's it's really just an opportunity to kind of make fun yeah, of Wiccans, I think so. Basically. I think so. But this yeah. this depiction of magic. I mean, do you have any thoughts mm-hmm. about introducing magic to the show this way? Um, I mean, I think that it is it isn't how magic is going I mean magic like everything like the vampires like the demons like the nature of the soul you know all of these things is going to go through a fair amount of evolution throughout Buffy and when we start with any of these things we start with the we kind of take the most simplistic representation of that thing and bring it in you know so I think that that's how we're starting with with witchcraft in this episode and also associated with women and also associated with negativity and badness like Willow does the Mm -hmm. that one spell you know and then Giles as a man comes in and does the spell that reverses everything yeah Right. So he's able to come in there and and reverse it. And we have this moment with Giles, too, where he says, oh, that was my first spell, which we know we know textually is absolutely not true. We're going to retcon that later. Um, But he has a moment where it's like my first spell. And I was like, no, I saw you dunking your hands in there and shouting into the void like this was no way. Exactly what he was doing. This is not your first rodeo, Giles. Giles knew exactly what he was doing when he plunged his hands into that fish tank of magic yeah oh. yes so the fish tank of magic. i mean really now <laughs> really now but yeah yeah but i don't know so i think i think it's 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 a somewhat flattened representation of of witchcraft and of the kind of magic that we're going to see evolve as we move through it but for a starting place i think it's okay what did you think about the representation of witchcraft bringing um, that magic I'd into like Buffy? bringing magic in as something that that exists in the world of Buffy um, because God mm-hmm. does that open up you know worlds of possibility just in terms of storytelling but it is it is connected with darkness sure. and I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not sure how I feel about that um, I don't know I mean, I'm not sure they knew going in what they were going to end up doing right. with magic. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, but I do. I, I'm very partial to magic in storytelling. I just love it. It's such a great um, mm-hmm. vehicle for telling different kinds of stories. And I love the, the intersection mm-hmm. of magic and science 
in the in the context of the high school. Um, I feel like, yeah, because mm-hmm. we're talking about knowledge, that it's all sort of it all sort of goes together. Mm-hmm. That that magic is our connection to the adult sort of world a little bit with, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. It feels there's something grown up about magic in this episode. And maybe mm-hmm. it's just that, yeah. you know, touching mm-hmm. again on that darkness of um, assault and, you know, non-consensual touch. But I feel like knowledge being connected to magic, you know, we've got, you know, Giles knows, mm-hmm. you know, this is his first spell, uh-huh. But he knows how this whole how the the casting would work and he knows what to look for. So, I dig mm-hmm. it. I dig it. I like magic in the world of Buffy. Um Yeah. Well, it's also a discussion of power, which is essentially one of the things that Buffy is about when we go into season 7, we're going right. to have them stated outright. It's about power, right? Um and this is always about a certain level of power within within Buffy, like where do you get your power? And here in this episode, we have witchcraft and this particular brand of magic <laughs> associated very strongly with this kind of dark force, you know. And we only engage with magic when we're fighting the darkness, right? When Willow is doing the spell so that they mm-hmm. can discover who if, if Amy's the witch right and um, and then Giles doing the spell to reverse it um, but what this does what this space like having magic within the world of Buffy within this cosmology allows for power to not just be solely held by Buffy that her support team can can dip into this power and of course it ends up being Willow who becomes a very very powerful you know witch throughout the course of the story yeah. um and xander doesn't yeah xander gets no powers nothing special you know he never he never dips into that powerful space it's buffy and it's willow who end up being incredibly powerful mm-hmm. and then giles is is very powerful as a support person you know he doesn't do these things you know on his own he doesn't you know become uh, like a powerful witch we never talk about him like that but he is able to um to do spells when it's necessary he knows what the spells are and what we need for them he has all of that knowledge you know but but even giles for the most part is a mundane form of support it is the two women you know buffy and willow who end up dipping into supernatural right. power right well and there's one woman that we haven't really talked about um so far in this episode and that's joyce and joyce mm-hmm. is the very definition of mundane yeah i mean she's yes mm-hmm. she rules the mundane part of the oh, story joyce. Mm-hmm. she is the opposite of magical <laughs> but I have to tell you, the first time I watched Buffy, I was not a parent. Right. I am a parent now. And I feel for Joyce. I know. I know. The older I get, the more I feel for Joyce. I really do. Although I don't, I don't care for Joyce a lot in like the first, I don't know, three seasons. And I think part of that, part of that is because 
you know, we're, we're, you can argue that we're deep in Buffy's POV and that what we see isn't actually really Joyce. It's just that whatever Buffy needs, whatever Buffy wants to do, we have to have somebody pushing back against her. So like in the beginning of this episode, we have Joyce as the distracted mom, the mom who's too busy, the mom who doesn't have time, you know, to spend any time with Buffy and Buffy's mm-hmm. all like, you know, kind of sad about that in that one particular scene. Right. You know, um, we have yeah. that moment where Joyce is, you know, sounds like Amy's mom doesn't have a lot to do you know that kind of thing the busy mom thing right right then we come back later and Joyce is trying to connect with Buffy and trying to talk with Buffy and trying to like and Buffy completely rejects that like she doesn't want that either so no matter what Joyce is simply in a scene to be the opposite of whatever Buffy needs or wants at any given time and because of that Mm -hmm. she's not characterized consistently we really don't get a strong sense of who she is because of that she says terrible things I mean not in this episode but throughout the run of Buffy she says some really truly awful things to Buffy Um, and she can be just terrible in so many ways but but it just always feels like her role is simply to be the annoying mom to simply be the mom who's pushing back against Buffy, the mom who doesn't understand, who doesn't get it right. You know, I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, would you want to be a 16 year old girl again, if you could? And of course she wouldn't, you know, she can't understand Buffy. We have this whole scene where Joyce, her whole thing is, I don't get it. I don't get it. You know, I don't understand you. I don't understand who you are. I can't possibly, you know? Um, And yet we have Buffy, you know, wanting that relationship in one scene and then completely rejecting it when Joyce hands it to her in another scene. Um, So it's, you know, it's Joyce is just simply kind of a cipher for the, the mom who's getting in the way, the, the antagonist mom, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so I find that because, because she doesn't get characterized. We don't really give her a personality of her own. She runs an art gallery, you know, like that's Joyce. Mm-hmm. That's her identity. She's that and she is Buffy's mom. But there's nothing yeah. about her that is, you know, that gives her a personality, that gives her kind of her own consistent sense of, of self, of who she is. And so because of that, Joyce, uh, Joyce tends to bother me um, because she's just always wrong. She's always saying the wrong thing. She's always doing the wrong thing. And I think that Christine Sutherland brings, so the actress who plays Joyce, brings such a lovely maternal, you know, kind of nurturing connection in the character. But what we get out of Joyce that is likable comes from, I think, Christine Sutherland's performance and not really from the textual work that she's given. Absolutely. They give her nothing to do and she Mm -hmm. does everything with it. Yeah. Um, But I agree with you. Joyce is just there to be the mom who, Mm -hmm. I mean, as she says herself, doesn't get it. Doesn't get it. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, well, and we use I, her to be a contrast to Amy's mom, right? Amy's right. mom, who is the engulfing, like basically, you know, there's there's two brands of narcissistic mothers, right? There's right. the engulfing. And this is something, of course, not everybody knows. I know this because whatever, um, because of reasons. But there's the engulfing, you know, narcissistic mother who is like, you know, Amy's mom who takes over, wants to live their life through you, you know, who controls and, um, and is involved in every little bit of their, their children's lives and can't, you know, can't leave them alone. And right. then there's what these it, three hours in the morning and three hours yes. at night. 
Right, right, right. I'm practicing with my mother, you know, all day. Um, and then, uh, and then there's the ignoring narcissistic mom who is so into her own thing that she doesn't even care where her kids are or what they're doing. Or, you know, the only time she cares about her kids is when they reflect well on her or when she's, when they reflect poorly and then she's angry with them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I look at these two mothers that are contrasting in these two very specific ways, but both of them are identified as as failures. Now, of course, I'm looking at a narcissistic mom model, which is not what either of these mothers are, though Amy's mom, I think Catherine may be. Catherine but, may um, be. Catherine, yeah. Catherine is diagnosable. She is definitely diagnosable by somebody who has like degrees that I don't have. So I'm, I'm not in a space to be able to do that. But I mean, I think that we have both of these moms. We have, we have Joyce, you know, most generously being presented as the very busy, um, you know, mom who's got other things to do um, and isn't, you know, um, you know, like overwhelming her daughter, but also in that way allows Buffy a space for Buffy to be her own independent person, which I think is actually a very positive thing. We have that moment with Buffy where she's saying, you know, you don't have to lockstep, mm-hmm. you know, to Amy. She's like, you don't have to lockstep with your mother. Yeah. Um, and then we see Buffy who doesn't lockstep with her mother, who talks back to her mother, who argues with her mother, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so like what, what that does, I think that is a positive for Joyce is it shows that Joyce is raising Buffy to be independent, to look after herself, to take care of herself without being neglectful. Yeah. You know, I mean, she's really not neglectful. She's busy. Yes. You know, and that's, I think, not a bad thing, you know, Um, but she's not neglectful. She does pay attention with Buffy. She's in the morning, you know, making fresh orange juice, which, by the way, I've done once <laughs> as a mother. That was very early in their lives. I will never do it again because that's just way too much work. And when Buffy comes in, it comes in and drinks both like orange juices. Yeah. Like that's where I'm. I'm like with the mom. Like something that the first time I watched Buffy, I wouldn't have made right. that association. But I'm like, hey, do you know how many oranges <laughs> to get that one cup of juice? That woman had to go through. She has been there since five o'clock this morning, making that one cup of juice. And then Buffy comes in, drinks both of them. And Joyce is like, wait a minute. I wanted some. That's another three hours. And can we talk about that scene for just a minute? I have, sure. I have a very important story expert type question for you. About that scene, okay. Buffy, you know, Buffy wakes up, breaks her alarm clock with her slayer strength. Right. And then comes downstairs singing Macho Man. Right. Lonnie, why is it Macho Man? Why is it Macho Man? You know, that's interesting. Um, I think it's, I honestly, I think it's Macho Man because Macho Man is one of those songs that's really easy to make fun of. <laughs> you know, it's one of those 1970s songs. You know, it's village people for sure. crying out loud. Like, it is a silly song that, you know, and having a young girl sing I Want to Be a Macho Man. Um, you know, I think, I don't think that there was a, a strong intent of like, you know, thematic, uh, reverberation there, but, um, at the same time, it is kind of an interesting, you know, she's singing this song about, about powerful yeah. masculinity, right. You know, and of course a song bemoaning the fact that like, I want to be yeah. a macho man means that you're, you're yeah. really not, you know? So, I mean, even the men singing <laughs> that song are, are coming from this ironic right. space. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought I thought it was pretty cute. <laughs> I don't know why, but that song just pulled me right out. I know that we're playing we're playing uh, magic like drunkenness, but for some reason, yes. mm-hmm. Buffy singing Macho Man, I was just like, nope. Of 
all the songs. Of all the songs. That the teenage girl, I mean, and this is a teenage girl in 1997. Right. Like Macho Man was like mid-70s, yeah. you know, when that was the thing. And I don't know that anybody has thought about that song since the mid-70s. <laughs> so for Buffy to be singing that song. It's one of these things too, like the, the pop culture references that you see in these really heavily inundated pop culture stories like Gilmore Girls is a prime example of this. Um, you know, and I, I think I'm, I'm probably going to end up calling it being Gilmore. You know, I think I had another, <laughs> another uh, reference for it, but Rory Gilmore would always come up with all of these pop culture references, Rory and all of her teenage girlfriends, right? With these pop culture references to things that they couldn't possibly have known about. Now, I mean, granted, Lorelai is going to be talking about a lot of those uh, pop culture references and Rory's going to be picking them up through osmosis mm-hmm. to a certain degree. Absolutely. Like, you know, I get it. But to have like everybody, all of the teenage kids coming up with all of these, you know, um, these references. And so we're seeing kind of that Gilmore effect happening with um, with Buffy, where the pop culture references belong to the person writing it, who is some 20 years older than the kids that are reading these lines right. you know so we have like we have whoever is um is writing it writing their pop culture references from the context that they understand them and then giving them to these kids who are you know 16 years old and probably would have no knowledge of of the village people because i don't take joyce as the kind of person who's playing the village people you know while she's driving buffy to school <laughs> like i just don't kind of i don't kind of see no. that you know Mm-mm. um so i mean i think with rory gilmore it makes a little more sense than than Buffy with this particular reference. But yeah, Buffy was totally Gilmore in that that moment. All right. So in the spirit of 90s feminism, (laughs) I want to end each episode with a little revolutionary feminist moment of the week um, that I want to call girl power. All right. (laughs) All right. How do I want to express this? Because I love it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and it plays into my favorite part, which we'll get into next. Okay. But the thing I love in which is women caring for each other through trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, we see this right at the beginning. Buffy leaps on Amber to put fire out. And she's holding her on the ground saying, it's okay. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's going to be okay. Yeah. And Buffy is in compassionate comforting hero mode right from the right from the get-go and then it's Buffy's connection with Amy that enables her to make the connection that it's Amy in Catherine's body she right, sees, she sees that mm-hmm. she identifies you know Buffy Buffy at this point in the story is dying from the spell that has been cast on her, but she's still empathic enough that she picks up on the discomfort in this woman who she thinks at this point is Amy's mother. Um, She -hmm. picks up on that discomfort when Giles is speaking so harshly to her and then catches Amy's eye, notices the plate of brownies, which again, you know, this uh, symbol of, feminine pleasure and rebellion yes through eating Mm -hmm. and and then Buffy says Amy and is able to Mm. put it all together um yeah and I just love the way that Buffy I mean Buffy has had this spell cast on her and rather than being angry she says Mm -hmm. um 
you know, not she's not quite correct at this point, but she says Amy only became a witch to survive her mother. So she's been yeah. hurt, mm-hmm. presumably by by Amy. She thinks it's it may be by Amy at this point. Right. Um, but she doesn't blame her because she understands mm-hmm. that Amy is acting out as a victim, not as you know someone out to get her specifically. Right. And I just, I adore yeah. that so much. I love, mm-hmm. um, I love the way Buffy listens to uh, Amy in Catherine's body tell her story about mm-hmm. what she'd been through with her, mm-hmm. her family. It's just remarkable. Um, yeah. And if you are a fan of women supporting each other through storytelling, I recommend Big Strong S right here on Chipperish. <laughs> Yes, it is a podcast that is completely finished now, but it is still available. And um, it was uh, me and Dr. Kelly Jones going through uh, Rising Strong by Brene Brown, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, and Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes. It was uh, it was a fantastic experience. And uh, and so yeah, if you are feeling in need of women supporting each other through trauma, uh, then that's the podcast for you. <laughs> fantastic. Highly recommended. Oh, thank you, baby. <laughs> All right. So what's your favorite part? My favorite part is related to the girl power Mm -hmm. uh, sentiment of this show. It's in that moment when Amy is telling her story to Buffy and Giles is off to Mm -hmm. the side um, because this is not his space. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, She's Amy and, and Buffy are sitting on the couch together and this composition is just fantastic. There's this cage yeah. looking thing mm-hmm. behind Amy as she's talking about how things were in her house and after her father left mm-hmm. and how her mother wouldn't even let her call, which, yeah. oh my God, um, some serious abuse going on there. But Buffy is, you know, she's incapacitated. She's dying. Mm-hmm. She's got, you know, not even three hours to live. And she's holding Amy's hand. Aww. And it's just so, it's so sweet, but not in an overly sentimental kind of way. It mm-hmm. feels like a genuine moment of comfort and connection to me. And I just, I just love it. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, it makes my favorite part feel really flat. <laughs> I like the Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> it wasn't until I thought about it as Schrodinger's cat that I actually love that moment, but it's fun. And it's, all, it's always fun to see Giles scream, yes. you know, and get taken off guard. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, because this isn't my favorite episode of, of Buffy by a long shot, which has never been, although I like it more now, now that I've talked to you about it, I think that there's, there's a lot more depth and, and interesting things there. So this is definitely raising it in my estimation. Um, but for me, like as a writer, the constant Mr. X, you know, um, that stuff really annoys me. I didn't care for the way that they did that. So because that bugs me every time I watch this show as, you know, a writer, it, it always kind of bugs me. But I, I, I like the I like the cat in the box. <laughs> Schrodinger's, cat. <laughs> Schrodinger's cat is alive. It's alive. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. That is it for today. To join in the discussion on Twitter, follow me at Lonnie Diane Rich and Noelle at Noelle Aloud and use the hashtag still pretty. But the best place for all the great discussion is two places, really. One is, are the Chipperish forums, which you can find if you go to chipperish.com, click on forum, you'll find them there. Um, and the other is the Patreon Discord chat. Um, and just $1 a month of support gets you in with some of the most amazing, smart people talking about Buffy over there. So it's really a lot of fun. Um, go to patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you can do that. This episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by Chipperish media producer Ariella Jaglom. Ariella supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level and as a reward gets to produce whatever show she wants. Yes. <laughs> thank you, Ariella. And thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media and makes all this possible. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you too can become a still pretty producer. That's right. All right. We'll be back next time with Teacher's Pet, the fourth episode of season one. Until then, don't keep your cats in a wooden box in the attic. God, no. And stay pretty. Stay pretty.